Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History. Um, This is going to be in every way a historic episode. Um, Firstly, because it's the first episode that we've done at a podcast festival. So it's absolutely fantastic to be here. Um, We've been going for less than a year. And so to actually be here and to see you guys, well, I can just about see you guys out there, um, is is really fantastic. So thanks so much for coming. also, this is going to be a historic episode because, as you can probably tell, <laughs> even though they have a, a kind of similar degree of, of follicle challenge, um, this is not Dominic. Um, this is Professor Ali Ansari of the University of St. Andrews, Professor of Iranian Studies. And the reason that Ali is here rather than Dominic is because Dominic has only gone and caught COVID. Um, he, he's over the worst. Uh, he, I, he, I think he was quite ill, so I mustn't be horrid about it and accuse him of malingering. <laughs> I think he really was ill. And um, he's, he's on his last day of quarantine, so absolutely terrible timing. But um, you know, every cloud ha- has a silver lining, and the silver lining in this case is, is Ali. And those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast um, may well remember the episode we did on Persia in which Ali was, you were set the challenge of basically proving that everything came from Persia. Which I, I think I did you? rather well. You I? did, I mean, I, I, you I, did. I, so yeah. what was it? It was religion, um, empire, high heels, time, high heels, suits. Spaghetti, the, which sort of slightly went off the edge, actually, I have to say, after a while. I got some, I got some abuse for that, I have to say. So I and, to, and the British Civil Service. The British Civil Service, I thought was, yeah, I thought yes. it was pretty, uh, yeah. Yeah, so if you haven't listened to that, um, Ali conclusively demonstrating that everything is basically Persian, please do. Um, but the third reason that this is a historic podcast is, of course, because it's about history. Um, and today's episode, we are going to look at the top 10 mistresses in history. And in a way, this is a companion piece to an earlier episode we did, the top 10 eunuchs in history. Um, and it's been a kind of running theme, genital mutilation, but we're trying to kind of expand on that. Uh, and actually, they, they're similar because what both of them do Firstly, they, they kind of, you know, inherently salacious, so it does enable us to talk about, you know, fair degree of filth, I suppose. Um, but, it, but it's not just about the filth, truly, ladies and gentlemen, because actually the subject of mistresses, I mean, mm. Ali, it's, it's about those who are powerless, as, rather as with eunuchs, it's about those who are powerless having a chance actually to exert influence. That's right. Uh, basically, the, the ability to exert... Uh, Political influence at quite an, an intimate level, I suppose, <laughs> yes. is the way to look at it. But yes. uh, but they do exert the influence. They do it. Although, as we'll see as we go down the list, I mean, some exert less than others. But uh, yes. So, so 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 the format we're going to do is we've got we've drawn up ten, yeah, uh, and right. Dominic has also had his his feedback. So he's 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 contributed to this list. He's here so the in three spirit. of us. He is yes. definitely here in spirit, and I will be calling for a friend if I need to. So the, th- the the three of us have have come up with this basically this top right. 10 and we'll be going from from number 10 up all the way up to number one the the, the person we think is the yeah. most influential mistress in history and basically the the parameters are uh, you have to have come from nowhere 
and exerted a kind of incredible influence on the course of history or whatever. So that's basically uh, are the specifications. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Ali, do you want to kick off? Because uh, you see up there, we've got, we've got our first one at number 10. Yes, we have the Nightingale. The Nightingale, yes. who I had never heard of. But yes. is she in any way Persian? Uh, <laughs> well, the truth is, yes. Is she influential? Probably not. But uh, it was partly as your, your means of getting me on this podcast that I insisted that we at least have one person on there that came from, uh, from Persia. And uh, this is, um, obviously, when we're looking at the topic of mistresses, it's a bit difficult. Uh, as much as I scoured through... Persian history and general Islamic history to find that you'll find that the patriarchy is not only entrenched, but it's probably institutionalized. So what you have is a situation where if you can have uh, uh, many wives and many concubines, mistresses are somewhat surplus to requirements. So it's a bit, uh, it's, it's, it was quite difficult to locate. So the Nightingale uh, was basically a concubine rather than a mistress of an early 19th century Persian king. Uh, but she's notable for the influence she exerted on him. And you'll acknowledge, of course, and I'll have to acknowledge that the influence was pretty slight because this uh, king had, uh, ooh, I think about a 1,000 concubines. <laughs> so, uh, but the interesting thing is it was noticed that this particular dancing girl from Shiraz, as it turns out, uh, had obviously captured the heart of this king, the painting of whom you saw yes, yesterday. So who's, who, what's his name? His name is, uh, and I shall have to sort of say it, but uh, no tittering, please, in the audience, is Fat Ali Shah. Now, not that that, not, that, not that that describes his look, as Tom will verify, having seen the painting. He was rather... A, and he had very sporting high heels, I have to say. He had sporting high heels, and he had the most enormous beard, didn't he? Uh, the so this is beard we, uh, was the sign uh, of virility. So Ali and I went yesterday to the um, exhibition on Epic Iran at the Victoria and Albert Museum. Right. And if you haven't seen it, it's, it's really wonderful. And this guy, Fat Ali Shah... He he's was, not particularly yeah, he's fat. Not fat. He's oh, not no, particularly no, fat, no. but he does have the most enormous beard, and he I'm has. guessing that a, a large beard is a, a, is a, a symbol of, uh, that you can cope with a thousand yeah. concubines. He had, a, I mean, interestingly, that your previous your previous uh, podcast was on eunuchs because his uncle was a eunuch. Oh. Uh, sadly, yes, castrated the tender age of six in order to prevent him actually becoming king, uh, but that didn't stop him. Um, and uh, because he couldn't obviously have any children, his nephew decided to really go for it and uh, basically created a, an entire tribe on his own. Uh, he's quite a character, this chap. But what's interesting about the Nightingale, whose name in Persian actually is Tuti, which, uh, as Tom and I were discussing earlier, actually means parrot, which is not quite, <laughs> as, not quite as attractive a name. But uh, the, the, the term in Persian, I suppose, is a little bit more... Uh, it was meant to be a little bit more dismissive. I, I prefer see. Nightingale because yeah, I think Nightingale romantic. sounds nice. So what, what, so what influence did she exert? How did this... The only influence really that I could find that she exerted is one is that she came to the notice of British observers at the time who said that uh, she clearly had captured the heart of the king, which, let's face it, if you have a thousand concubines and this is the one yeah. that captured the yeah. heart, that's not bad. And that she died very young, tragically, and that the king was uh, very moved by this and was seen to visit her grave regularly and with melancholia. And, and actually what they said was that this this young girl basically humanised this king. I mean, so she had a modest influence. I can't that, say it's that, big, and I, I have to say... It? I have to say... <laughs> I have to say, if I wasn't here, I don't think she'd get into the top ten. <laughs> I, I thought the least she would have encouraged him to invade Persia, you know, invade no, no, India or something. No, 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 he was far too busy in the heart. I mean, a okay. thousand concubines. I mean, what, is there time for anything else? 
Okay, yes. so... So that, I'm afraid... So she, she didn't do anything. She died young and she was called the parrot. But, but she was, yeah, but... <laughs> but she was but Persian. But she was noticed. She, she was, was noticed by the British and uh, she was Persian. And I suppose she does reflect, and it allows us to talk a little bit about this, I suppose, is the fact that, uh, yes, in these societies where you had... What can we say? You know, you can have four wives and as many concubines as you can afford. I mean, mistresses don't really come into it. Okay, so, so you can see, ladies and gentlemen, why she, why the nightingale or the parrot yeah. was at number ten. That's right. Um, so that's her. So number number nine. Um, you, you said that the parrot had or nightingale had had. Oh, let's had go for nightingale. I think had I mean, no influence on good. history. Our mm. next one is someone who had an absolutely outsized influence oh, on God, history, yeah. and you may well be surprised to discover she's only at nine. Yeah. Um, Cleopatra. In at number nine, of course, is one of the great names, not just in ancient history, but in, in global history, absolute kind of historical celebrity. Um, the mistress of um, the two most powerful men in the world, first Julius Caesar uh, and then Mark Antony. And um, you may be wondering, well, why is she so low? Well, the answer is, is that by our rubric, you have to come from nowhere and achieve great things. Cleopatra is the queen of Egypt. Um, she, she, of course, is not as powerful as the Roman warlords who control the day because middle of the um, first century BC, Rome is the superpower and Egypt is pretty much um, the only independent kingdom left uh, after several centuries of Roman conquests across the Mediterranean. Um, but Cleopatra is a player. Um, and so that it, she, she, you know, it, she is bringing things that both Caesar and Antony want. Um, and I think it's absolutely telling that, you know, the reputation of Cleopatra, um, you know, f among the Romans and then a kind of more recent um, works of pornography, for instance, have been obsessed by her is that she had a voracious sexual appetite. And this is, this is kind of, uh, explains her, her relentless appetite. In fact, as far as we know, she only ever slept with two men. And these two men both happened to be incredibly powerful. And I think that that tells you what she was about. She, she, she slept with first Julius Caesar and then with Mark Antony because she needed Roman power. First of all, with Caesar to establish her on the Egyptian throne. So she, was, um, she came from a long line of, of um, Macedonian kings and queens who had adopted the native Egyptian tradition of brother and sister marrying each other. And Cleopatra was initially married to her younger brother, um, uh, Ptolemy XIII, but she didn't want him around, a kind of pesky younger brother. So um, she, she gets embroiled in the civil war in Alexandria. Caesar turns up. Cleopatra, according to the story, has herself delivered to Caesar, rolled up in a carpet. That's right. Um, and I think that, that, that Cleopatra has kind of, if that's true, has judged Caesar's character. But I mean, the, the interesting thing about her, I suppose, is where the balance of power is, really, because they, yeah. certainly with Mark Antony, I think she's very much in, you know, got the whip hand, hasn't she? Well, she, she gets it. I mean, certainly yeah. with Caesar, it's, it's evident. She, I mean, she's a kind of, you know, the classic paradigm of the mistress, someone yeah. who, is, who, yeah. is, who is very kind of dependent on Caesar. But then once, you know, once Caesar's established her securely on the throne, she, you know, she, she becomes a player in her own something right. Of, something of the sort of the outsider when she, uh, yes. when the Romans don't really take to her, do they? Well, she goes to Rome yeah. um, just before the Ides of March and, and causes a great scandal. She snubs Cicero, you know, who's a, a kind of never very offended by this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, never snub an academic. Never, never snub the academic. Yeah, no, that's true. And then the Ides of March happens yeah. and Cleopatra's, uh, oh, and Cleopatra's got herself pregnant as well. 
with was she, Caesar. Was she there over the Ides of March? Yes, she's there at oh. the Ides of March, and she's, she's um, her young son, Caesarian. Caesarian. Who, giving a clue as to who the father I is. <laughs> um, so, so her plan, basically, to establish a kind of dynastic union with, with the most powerful man in Rome is foiled by Caesar's assassination, and the Roman world gets divided between uh, Mark Antony, mm -hmm. Caesar's best lieutenant, and the, the future Augustus, um, Octavian, who uh, is his adopted son. Um, the world gets split. Mark Antony takes the eastern half of the Roman Empire and summons Cleopatra in a very imperious way to Tarsus, where right. um, he's made his base. And Cleopatra, who had wowed Caesar by being rolled up in the carpet, wows Antony, who's a much more vulgar man, by turning up with the most incredible bling. So massive kind of barge. This is the thing that um, you know Shakespeare makes kind of wonderful kind of Presumably, Mark Antony was quite taken by the fact that he would be, uh, he would be going with Caesar's mistress. That's absolutely part yeah, of it, yes, yeah, yeah. yes. But but essentially, Cleopatra so is that, she is wowing him yeah. with with her, you know, her, her, her gold, her splendour, her pizzazz, and um, could basically, you say, could you say she emasculates him? No, because right. uh, because um, Antony and Cleopatra are, are definitely a, a, a pair, a unit. But like politically emasculates him. Well, that's what subsequently happens because yeah. uh, because Antony has an affair with Cleopatra, then goes back basically signs a peace treaty with Octavian by mm. the terms of which he will marry Octavian's sister Octavia um, who is a kind of upright Roman matron very much not Cleopatra um, Antony stays with her for a while but then basically bins her and shacks up with Cleopatra and the, the propaganda in Rome coming from the future Augustus which then gets picked up by Roman historians and in due course by Shakespeare and <coughs> Cecil B. DeMille and Elizabeth Taylor and so on, is that this is all for love. Mm. But the probability is that it's a, it's a kind of dynastic throw. Antony is looking essentially to, to get rid of, uh, of his pesky partner in the rule of the Roman world. Mm. He needs Cleopatra for that. But it all goes wrong. Um, Antony and Cleopatra get defeated at Actium. Um, and by that point, basically, Cleopatra's the powerful one because Cleopatra's right. queen of Egypt, but Antony's lost Antony's everything. Nothing. Yeah. Um, so Antony, Antony dies, and the story is, is that Cleopatra then makes a, a, a pitch at, at Octavian. Oh, Octa that, that wouldn't have gone down well, I don't know. Well, Octavian doesn't need her, though. So I must admit, I thought the sort of the sibling uh, marrying stuff was all Zoroastrian, but you're saying the Egyptians are up to it as well, which is quite interesting. Yeah. And, and they got their yeah. first. I'm Ali. going to try and get something Persian in my No, they, they, but, they, but, uh, the Egyptians got their first. Did they? Yeah, I'm afraid so. Yeah. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, Not so, that that's the finest achievement of the. But, you know, but anyway, so, those were. So, by, so, by, so basically, by the, and then Cleopatra, of course, famously commits suicide rather than walk in, in uh, Caesar's triumph yeah, right. um, with, with the asp smuggled in and the, the, the basket of figs. Um, and by that point, you could almost say that the roles have reversed, and it's it's you know Cleopatra is the powerful one, and Antony is is the suitor. Yeah. And so that then opens up a question which is focused by our next one. Our next one. Which is interesting. Isn't which it? is the question: um, Can there be a male mistress? That's right. So Ali, do you want to? Well, this is this is so a, this is, takes who, me back to my medieval. So who is number eight? So Piers Gaveston who was the, um, shall we call it, you know, the, the, the intimate friend of Edward II. Um, and as I understand, was actually introduced into the household by his father, Edward Longshanks, which is uh, probably not the wisest thing to have done, uh, because he then discovered that the relationship between his, uh, his son and Piers Gaveston was getting a little bit too close. Now, of course, we don't know 
you know, posthumously they've talked about um, how intimate that relationship was. But clearly he had a, a degree of influence which uh, the nobility in England after Edward became king weren't particularly, uh, weren't particularly keen on. So there's a, there's a sort of an interesting dynamic there about whether we can categorise Piers Gaveston as a sort of a, a, a mistress type. Well, he's a favourite, isn't he? He's a favourite, so, yeah. so, so, so men who come from nowhere, or, you know, not even from nowhere, I mean, you know, Gaveston is... from Gascony. Yeah, he's from Gascony. I mean, yeah. he's kind of well-born. Um, but, but the idea of the, 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 the favourite who is over-promoted is, yeah. is a very distinctive category. But I think that what makes Gaveston kind of interesting is that, as you say, there is absolutely these kind of... There do seem to have been these rumours that absolutely. there were kind of sexual dimension to it. Um, and that gets picked up by, by Christopher Marlowe, who writes a play about it, um, and it, it's fed it into, I think, the Piers Gaveston Club at Oxford is the Bullingdon Club yes. for kind of people who wear opera clothes. Very debauched. <laughs> yeah, no, <I> <laughs> um, so anyway, so, so, so but the... But it, it does bring in this, I mean, it is, an interesting, it is an interesting sort of relationship. I mean, whether, you know, we were talking about, you know, later um, uh, monarchs such as Catherine the Great, who had a string of sort of uh, male lovers, uh, who played a very sort of influential role in her? I mean, actually helped her kill her husband. Actually, which is but I guess they'd be favourites. I mean, they would they'd count be as favourites, yeah, but they were sort of. And I think Gaveston is 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 a sort of a quite a, a fa I mean, at least a famous a famous one of these in that sense. Because because I think that I mean the the reason that that, that Gaveston causes so much trouble. It, it, it seems from the from from the sources isn't isn't really because of the the sexual dimension if that, if that indeed that existed it is because he's he's clearly a massive lad he, he's well, really yeah, he's really I mean, he's yeah. really good at tournaments and he's so he's he's on campaign with Edward the yeah. in Scotland and he bunks off to go to a tournament which is you know, not well, the, I mean, that, not the, the kind of behaviour. The interesting thing is, if Edward the First has introduced him, he must have thought highly of him. I mean, that, that's the thing. But I think he, he regrets it. He does regret and then, it. And then, <laughs> the, moment, the moment Edward dies, um, Edward, no, the now yeah, Edward the yeah, Second, is yeah. lavishing gifts on him. Yeah, yeah. Is um, he makes him the um, the Earl of Cornwall, um, and Gaveston enters the tournament again and and kind of humiliates the established aristocracy. So, I think it's that that really. He's a bit of a show off, really. He, he's, he's, yeah, he's, he's a kind of peacock. He's sort of, of up with his Lamborghini and stuff like that. Absolutely. Yeah, he looks, yeah, and the, absolutely. the traditional aristocracy aren't very keen on this sort of And thing. so the aristocracy are, are kind of endlessly trying to get rid of him. Yeah. Um, is... And Edward is kind of forced to, to send him into exile, and then Gaveston comes back, and then the cycle you know, goes over and over and over. And then finally in 1312, Gaveston gets cornered and executed. And his, his end is not pretty, is it? I don't think. I mean, if I remember... No, he just, his, he his head gets chopped off. It's Edward II whose end is not but pretty. But wasn't Piers Gaveston hung, drawn and quartered? No, I think he just got... Oh, just, oh, he just, just had his oh, head well, chopped just off. Just head chopped off, right. um, But uh, Edward II had it rather, yeah. Well, ev everybody involved claim, in this story, claim, terrible things are told of them. So all, this, all the stuff about Gaveston, yeah. you know, the rumours, we don't know whether they're true or not. Edward II, notoriously, he ends up getting deposed... Um, by his, his wife, Isabella, the she-wolf of France, mm. and her lover, and he gets put in Berkeley Castle, and terrible screams are heard. And the story is, of course, that he, he is um, killed by having a red-hot poker shoved up his anus. Um, perhaps to disguise what had happened, and perhaps as a kind of brutal joke perhaps about his relationship. Also, was, it, was it also because you, you mustn't shed royal blood? Yeah, that that yeah. that as well. It's a very sort of like it's a rather you know Middle Eastern idea, but no matter. Possibly uh, Persian. Yeah, possibly. I well, mean, interestingly, I, I was reading as I told you, there was reading a um, uh, uh, 
one of the earliest histories of, of, of Britain, written, written actually by a Persian traveller, who, um, <laughs> who accounts for this, actually describes the death of Edward II in some detail. He's, he finds it quite interesting. Yes, What he did does. he say? Well, he just says he had a, something stuck up an orifice. And yeah, does he and not elaborate? Says, oh, yeah, he just says, you know, that was this <laughs> the way it was. I think these are sort of routine means of execution. These barbarians. Yeah, yeah. These yeah, barbarian actually, kings. Actually, interestingly, he also adds, which I'll throw in here, that you know the only reason Henry VIII had so many problems with his with his wives is he is he couldn't have more than one at the same time. I mean, if he could, like you know, good Persian kings, it'd be no problem. But his wife, I mean, uh, his wife Isabella, mm. it was said of her that at the age of seventy, she took an alchemical elixir that enabled her to um, to have oh to have sex with forty young men at a time. What is the she wolf? Yes. We yes. told you it was going to get selected. So shocking, <laughs> shocking detail. But well, all, shocking. all I'm sure not true. So we only mention it to discount it, mm. which is very much having I mean, your that cake. That would be quite, yeah, 40, having, yeah, your, yeah. having your cake and eating yeah, it. Having your cake, yeah, absolutely. So, um, so do, do we think? I mean, Piers Gaveston's kind of a mistress, isn't he? Yes. I mean, I, I think I think we've got to be, you know, we've got to look at this, you know, with a, a level playing field, really. And I mean, I, I think he definitely, you know, he, he uses his intimacy to gain influence. But it does, I mean, it does highlight the way in which, overwhelmingly, we are talking about societies yeah. in which it's the men who have power, yeah. and in a sense, therefore, for men to have, to, to, to obtain power through sexual relations is inherently seen as aberrant. Yes, no, that's, yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's true, actually. Yeah. Unless you're in a society where you, can, where you have eunuchs. Yeah which takes us back to the previous episode. So I think, so I think that, that, um, that, that Piers Gaveston, I mean, he's kind of interesting choice um, uh, and a good choice, but I think doesn't deserve to, to feature any higher than number eight. So shall we move on to number seven? Number seven. Okay, so number seven, um, there was a, a gentleman, I was coming this on the tube here and um, uh, he, he recognized me um, and said that he was coming here. So I don't know if you're here, gentlemen. Who are, yes, there your hand oh. goes up. Lovely to yeah. see you. I'm so glad you made it. <laughs> so um, he, was, he and, wasn't uh, making it up. Yeah, no. And I was, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I never make anything up. No, 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 and, and, <laughs> and I was, I was busy reading um, a book, kind of uh, swatting up, ready yeah. for this. And the, the book was a biography of Nelson, ah. which will give you a clue as to um, the woman who comes in at number seven. Is, well, I have to say, she's a particular favourite of mine, but you can't. Um, so e Emma Hamilton, yeah. Lady Hamilton, yeah. um, who uh, famously um, had an affair with, well, more than an affair, a great kind of lifelong, pa a, a great passion great with passion. Admiral Nelson. Yeah. Um, and I think that we, 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 can, we can say of Emma Hamilton that she absolutely fits the paradigm of the woman who comes from nowhere and uses her sex appeal, uses her charm, uses her intelligence to rise massively above the station into which she was born. Um, and of course, in, in, um, in 1765, when, when she was born, um, this is a, England is an incredibly stratified society. Um, and Emma is uh, born in Cheshire, um, quite humble background, but she heads to London, as so many ambitious people, both male and female, did. Um, and London, of course, is, is a, a terribly dangerous, threatening place for young people with, with high ambitions. So um, Emma was always kind of treading a tightrope of potential ruin 
and, and for women particularly, uh, you know, those who are going to use their sex appeal, the risk is always that you, you kind of end up pregnant, ruined, um, and just thrown on the dung heap. So Emma is, is, is taking huge, huge risks in going to London. She, um, she enters the kind of the, the theatrical world uh, again, as, as so many successful mistresses do. Quite the nightingale. Yeah, so she, she, she works as, as an actress. She yeah. also, she works as, um, she's employed as a maid to that's successful right. actresses. Yeah, so she right, kind of yeah. picks up on that. Um, and she becomes a dancer. And her ability to, I mean, they have dancers in Persia. That's right, yeah. she, so, she was very so almost famous for her beauty, of course. Like I mean, the, 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 thing with Emma, Emma, the thing with Emma Hamilton is, is just, for me, the most, is, is the tragedy of it all, actually. I mean, to be honest, I mean, she's basically passed on from one well, yes. successful... Yes. Man to another, so, 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 so you, you, you yes. So the first one. So her achievement is to 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 bag a man, yeah. a, a, a powerful posh man, and this man is Charles Greville, who seems to be rather boring. He was, but much older. Is very rich. Yeah, fair enough. So, so Charles Greville. It's kind of um, my fair lady scenario. So he he puts her up in a house in Paddington, yeah. and and Emma is very very. She shows herself to be very proficient at languages. So she learns Italian and um, and French very quickly. Um, she she becomes great friends with the Queen. So um, of Naples. Yeah, the Queen of Naples. Um, and she has this great, this great, this great thing. It's always my favourite thing about her that that she, she. And this is again where the dancing comes in. Yeah. They're called uh, Emma Hamilton's attitudes. Oh, that's right. Yes, yes, I read about. And that. she, yeah, 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 she yeah. kind of, she uses her control of of dance and mime to simulate scenes from classical antiquity. So, so uh, William Hamilton's pots. You know, there'll be nymphs yeah, or something yeah. uh, on on the pots, and she will pose. Uh, and Naked. you know, before YouTube, this is yeah. the kind of hottest ticket in Naples. Yeah. Yeah. So all, everyone gathers round to, to watch her do her attitudes, uh, and it's all you know, it's all great fun. Very enlightenment stuff, isn't it? Really? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, Nelson turns up. Oh yes. Um, and and he, he kind of turns up in the early 1790s, and you know, the eyes meet across crowded rooms. Mm, mm. But then the, the thing that really kind of lights the, 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 the taper is that Nelson turns up after the Battle of the Nile, uh -huh. where he has destroyed the French fleet. Uh, Napoleon's gone to Egypt to try and conquer Egypt, which he does, but gets stranded because Nelson has sailed in yeah. Yeah, into the mouth of the Nile and um, with great daring has destroyed the French fleet. Uh, and as a result is absolutely the kind of, you know, the toast of, of the anti-French Europe and particularly of Britain, goes back to Naples, is informed that he's become Lord Nelson and he's, he needs a rest, he needs to recharge his batteries. And Emma you put it, recharges you put it his so batteries well. for you put him. It, you put it so well. <laughs> I mean, you put it, well, I have to say, uh, yes, William Hamilton is quite, um, hmm, how should we say? I mean, he's quite he's, mellow about it. He's quite it. mellow about it, yeah. He, is, he doesn't take it too badly, does he? I mean, he's... he's, he's I think he's, he's a, a mellow guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there's definitely something there where it, it's, it's definitely a passionate love affair, isn't it? Between, between yes. Yeah. So they both, yes. And Nelson, of course, and the reason Emma is a mistress is that Nelson is, is married. He's married, yeah. Not to, to, to Fanny, yeah, he's not who is back in, in kind of wet, dank, yeah. dreary Norfolk, with apologies to, yeah. to anyone from Norfolk. <laughs> but, it, it, but it can't measure up to the sheer pizzazz and excitement of, 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 of the court uh, Emma of Hamilton, yeah, And Emma with her attitudes yeah, and her, her general sense of fun. And, and Nelson just gets completely besotted. Um, and there's, in due course, there's a kind of a revolution which Nelson helps to, um, well, it does more than help, I mean, basically puts down. 
um, and this becomes a cause of con considerable controversy back in England. Um, uh, you know, has, has he gone too far? Has he been too brutal with it? Um, but Nelson helps to put that down, and then and then they all go back home to uh, to England because William Hamilton has been recalled, and so they go back um, across Europe via Vienna, where um, uh, Hayden in um, in Vienna it gets obsessed by by Emma, big big, big fan, go back to England. Um, and Nelson, of course, is, is, is the hero that, that England needs at this difficult time in the war against Napoleon. He's, he's, a, he's tremendously charismatic. He's the great hero who saved Britain. Um, he, he, he has color. He is um, in every way the kind of the pinup. And, and then he, dies. he brings this baggage of celebrity because it's, I mean, yeah. it's kind of absolute tabloid fodder because Basically, that, you know, yeah. his wife his wife is distraught, doesn't want to give him up without yeah. a fight. Nelson's obsessed with Emma. Emma is still with William Hamilton. The whole thing is absolute kind of, you know, it's brilliant. Everybody's obsessed by it but and I, writing I, it up. I, and everywhere they go, they're being followed. But so I was it's surprised, exactly like the tabloids. But I was surprised, but I, I was surprised that this early stage, because, you know, I, I always thought, you know, this sort of more prudish attitudes come out, you know, later on with the Victorian era. Uh, that the idea of someone having a mistress would have been, um, I suppose George III never had mistresses, did he? So he probably didn't set the, the, the tone wasn't right. Well, was it, it? No, it, I mean, a it is a little bit more it, it, Puritan it, it, than we might have thought. Well, no, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't lose Nelson his popularity. It, in a way, but it kind of enhances it. She gets it. gets it. She gets right. it quite tough. So it's, I mean, it's not exactly a... So, so, so Nelson ends up, you know, he, he, he leaves his wife. Um, Hamilton dies. Nelson and, and, and Emma shack up together yeah. um, in, in a house in Merton, uh, next to the River Wandle. Right. Um, so I, I'm very keen on walking London's rivers, and you walk the River Wandle, and suddenly every pub, every street is named after Nelson, and you know that you've reached the site of the, the, the long vanished house that he and, 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 and Emma Hamilton not lived after in. Emma. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so of course, and they have a daughter, Horatia. Yeah. So, which yeah, is giving a massive a clue as to who the yeah, father Horatia. is. I mean, it couldn't, you know. Cesarean, and also, Horatia, and Horatia yeah. looks exactly like Nelson. Oh dear. I mean, it's, obviously, she has an arm and a, you know, yeah. hasn't lost an eye. Oh, yeah. But apart from that, she looks very like him. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then, of course, Nelson sails off, dies at Trafalgar. Trafalgar. And, and, it, and as he's dying, he, he, he thinks of Emma. And he says, you know, please look after Emma, make sure that, that, that Emma is cared for. And he misses Emma so much that it is that, it is said, that prompts him to ask Hardy to give him a kiss. Doesn't have Emma there, so Hardy will, will do. And then he dies. So you think he actually did say to Hardy? I thought it was Kismet. I, I, I thought I, it was about destiny or something. Oh, the Persian thing again. Well, yeah, I thought it was, yeah. <laughs> no, but the, but, the, but the bad news is, of course, is that once Nelson dies, I think it's his brother, isn't it, who sort of inherits everything. Yes. And his brother is a vicar, is that right? Yes. And uh, rather, how should we say, you know, not, he doesn't approve, let's put it that way. Yes. And then, of course, uh, you know, one of the things that I found very, I mean, it's quite tragic, is so you have this extraordinary funeral, obviously, state funeral for Nelson, uh, held in St. Paul's and everything, all sort of glorious, technical and everything. And the one person who isn't invited is Emma. Yeah. And she's left outside, basically. Yeah. And uh, from then on, she's effectively ostracised. I mean, she's, she's and goes in, uh, and loses her money. Yeah, um, I mean, it is tragic. I has mean, to it sell, is ha sell tragic. the house at Merton. Sell the house, yeah. Um, goes to, 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 to debtors' prison. 
um, gets freed by some of Nelson's friends, um, but she, she kind of, you know, dies, I think, in Calais, um, which is... 1815, Yeah, 1815, Calais is the place, you know, like Beau Brummel, where, where, where ruined Regency celebrities go uh, to die. Uh, and, it, and it's, yeah, and it's, it's, it's terrible. Um, and, and people do feel guilty about it. And actually, I mean, you talked about kind of Victorian morality, but I think it's in the 1840s yeah. that, that people feel so guilty about how she's been, she'd been treated that, that the government ends up settling money on Horatia's three children oh, I see. Um, as a way of kind of yeah, making amends. So, so I think that, that, um, that, that Emma is a kind of, um, in a way, she's kind of the paradigm of the kind of mistress that we're going to, to be looking at from now on but she she's um she's at number seven because she doesn't really you know she 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 has this wonderful kind of relationship with nelson but she doesn't bed it down and and in a sense the the way that she's used her beauty and her notoriety to 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 leverage herself up into a position of, of power and wealth it ends up chewing her up and of course that's something that that you know we see today with with the way that that celebrities get yeah, treated. It is, it is, yeah, it's a sort um, of but but um, our next one is is also uh, uh, someone who came from nowhere, um, well, got involved with the theatre, but yeah. was incredibly successful. So basically, Nell Gwynn, I mean, is very successful because in many ways she causes the least uh, problems for her for her lover in that sense, Charles II, obviously. Um, Charles II, famous or for, for numerous mistresses, it has to be said. One of which is it Lady Castlemaine, who's uh, Barbara Villiers, particularly uh, particularly difficult, it might be said. Uh, certainly to Charles. So and had amazing underwear. Amazing the, the underwear. The peeps going through Whitehall sees Lady Castlemaine's yeah. underwear, Oof. and kind of he rushes back home, and then there's some asterisks in his diary. <laughs> but the but the interesting thing with Nell Gwynn, I suppose, is first of all where she comes from so she's yes. from very so she's a you know an actress come fruit seller whatever. well i think even lower than that. i mean she she comes from a slum i mean yeah. there are kind of various stories about where she, so gwyn that perhaps she comes from wales but i think almost certainly she's born kind of in you know the stews of yeah. drury lane covent garden uh, and and clearly there's the kind of you know the the, the very very strong whiff of prostitution around everything to, to do with her her origins she's her upbringing yeah, and uh, yeah, and so in the pre-modern sense, the uh, yeah, well, uh, the, yeah, but and, and and so she becomes an orange girl. That's the famous thing that everyone knows about Nell Gwynn is that, that that she sells oranges, um, and she's what kind of I think fourteen. But or it's something. sort of it's it isn't it seen to sort of Charles II's credit in some ways that he's he's uh, besotted or falls in love with someone who is you know so much salt of the earth type sort of. I mean, it's not yes. aristocratic, and I mean, there's no yes. basis of. You know, here she is. You know, coming from basic. So, in some ways, it adds to its popularity, of course, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely. In some ways, yes. Yeah. Yes. So, so she goes from being an orange girl, which basically means that, you know it's kind of the, the equivalent of kind of selling fruit pastels in in the West End now. Yeah. You're going around with your tray. Are of, there people of, selling fruit pastels? In the yeah, I mean, it's a it's a, it's a, mis it. a mystery yeah. of seventeenth century yeah, right. historiography. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. You know, not, and not just oranges, kind of lemons, <laughs> lemons and all, you know, fruit and. But these are exotic fruits. Exotic, yes, exactly, exactly. And then and then, she's she's very well. She uh, again, Peeps calls her pretty, witty Nell. Um, she's she's pretty, she's witty, and. It's evident to the, the, the guys who, who, who've basically employed her in the theatre that she's got the makings of a great comic actress. Mm. And I think, I mean, I just kind of think who a modern equivalent would be, and I would guess it would be Barbara Windsor. That, that <laughs> That's, yeah, she's, 
you know, she's smart, she's clever, she's funny, she's sexy, um, she's salt of the earth. Yeah. People just kind of seem to love her. Um, and she's she's sort of like, I mean, the, the impression you get is that she's, for Charles anyway, she's sort of problem free. I mean, she, she doesn't ask, she doesn't demand anything of him. Yeah, well, in so the way that others do. So they're all demanding things. She doesn't. And at the end of the day, he does actually get, you know, he does, you know, in his will, say, you know, look after Nell and all this sort of thing. Absolutely. Well, so, so, so she, she comes in in 1668 as Lady Castlemaine, Barbara Villiers, is kind of starting to fade. Right. She overplayed her hand and, she, and she's ageing, which, of course, is an occupational hazard well, yeah. for a mistress. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it, it, it becomes that. known that Charles II is looking for a replacement. Mm -hmm. So there are kind of various actresses. And uh, supposedly, Nell Gwynne gives a rival actress a laxative. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> oh, Just before a date with Charles II, which kind of obviously is... Well, it's... That does... That does. <laughs> it's, it's a brilliant thing to do, That's to get rid of a potential love rival. Um, oh and, and, so, and, then, uh, and, and then it all goes tremendously well. But I mean, uh, Charles II, I mean, I think that, that of all the... Because, uh, of course, you know, if you, where there's a mistress, there's a guy who has a mistress. I think Charles II is, has the greatest array of mistresses of any English king. Um, and Nell Gwynne's great rival is uh, Louise de Kerouet, who is ah, French, French. Yeah, and yeah. Catholic. And who Nell Gwynne nicknamed Squintabella. Squintabella. Oh so dear. again, that's very kind of Barbara Windsor. Oh dear. You know, yeah, yeah. yeah my pal. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole. <laughs> you stuck up French oh Catholic. Yeah. And there is a thing that that, that Nell. That, that, mm. So, so, so Nell Gwynne, as a kind of sort of the earth, lovable Cockney Protestant, yeah. is much more popular with the London crowds than the stuck up French Catholic. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's this um, uh, famous story that, that Nell Gwynne is out in a carriage. Um, the, 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 the mob, yes, the, the mob says, think, yeah. yeah, yeah. And she says that you know I'm I'm the I'm the king's Protestant. Uh, I'm the Protestant whore. whore. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. So they all go great, no problem. Because <laughs> we forget, of course, the you know the sectarian uh, anxieties yes. of the 17th century. I should say. Yes, and, so, and, and, you know, and having a Catholic, yeah, having Catholic. And, and Charles himself is kind of, you know, he, he he's leaning towards. Well, Charles II is is um, leaning towards Catholicism, and also is basically in the pocket of of the French of, the of French, Louis XIV. Yeah, so um, uh, Louise is is you know his. Is you know, yeah. aspirational mistress. Was she not? Was she not placed there by Louis the Fourteenth? Yes. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. And then also you've got um, Francis Stuart, who famously doesn't become his mistress, um, ah. and therefore you know plays hard to get. And so Charles is even more obsessed with her, and she's the one who becomes the first model for Britannia. So, so Nell Gwynne, up to this point, you could say, I mean, what's the difference with, with, um, with Emma Hamilton? The difference is, of course, that Nell Gwynne doesn't, you know, everything goes fine. Yeah, because she doesn't get, well, Charles II dies and she is looked after and she does her son become... Yeah, so she has two sons. Two sons. And the son, the, the, the kind of various stories about how this works. One is that um, uh, Charles is, is kind of, you know, hanging out with Nell and the, the young boy, who's also called Charles, wanders in and Nell Gwynne says, come here, you little bastard. And Charles II says, you can't call my son a little bastard. <laughs> and Nell Gwynne says, yes, but that's what he is. Yes, Unless you give him a peerage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
nicely done. And the other story is, 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 which I th is even more improbable is that nicely she done. kind of dropped him, hung him out of a window and threatened to drop him unless Charles gave him a peerage. Which again, I, so, so he becomes, um, I, I think, the, uh, the Earl of Burford and then the, the Duke of St. Albans, um, Charles Duke. Beauclair. Oh. Um, and the Beauclairs, I think, I think they, the house in Windsor that they got given, they lived there until quite recently. So, um, and there are all kinds of members of the aristocracy to this day who... who oh, the line isn't extinct then, it's still... No, they're all very, oh, very right. proud to be descended from Nell Gwynne oh, and, right. and, and, you know, from, from Charles. So, um, so I think that that's, you know, she, she, she's a winner. No, uh, I think uh, she is. I mean, if you compare, obviously, with Emma Hamilton, I mean, that's, uh, she's, 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 done, she's done well. Yes, she does, she has yeah. done well. So, so she's in at six, um, and then at, um, at number five... Yeah, uh, yeah, this is your one, I think. Yes, so um, Lily Langtree uh, is, is a fascinating, you know, she complements and contrasts with Nell Gwynne. So Nell Gwynne uses the stage to become the mistress of a member of the royal, you know, to become a king. Um, Lily Langtree uses her affair with the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, to become an actress. And the reason we put her in at five is that Lily Langtree serves as a kind of prototype for possibly the two most famous mistresses of the 20th century, mm. Marilyn and Camilla. Um, and she, Lily Langtree is part of a kind of a trend in the 19th century for kind of celebrity courtesans who um, sleep with incredibly a range of famous people. So there's Lola Montez, who despite her name is, is, is actually Irish. Irish. Yeah. And she kind of pretends to be a Spanish dancer, and she gets off with. Um, She's a fascinating figure, though. I think. I mean, Lola Montez. Uh, to be honest, I would have had her instead of Lily Langtree. But yes, know, we, we 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 have we agreed. We yes, agreed. We, yes, I know. We have debated this. We Ali, have debated. And yeah. now is not the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I will say something. Yeah, yeah, so, 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 so Lola Montez, as you, as you correctly pointed out, you know, she has affairs with Franz Liszt, with Alexandre Dumas, who writes The Three Musketeers, um, and famously with, with Ludwig, Ludwig I of Bavaria. Yeah, that's the best. And she, uh, uh, Lola Montez thinks she's absolutely made it. You know, she's in this area, <laughs> hanging out in Bavaria. And then 1848 turns There's up, the year of revolutions, and she gets, you know, she gets to go to America. Uh, one other famous person she has an affair with, of course, is Flashman. That's right, and that's how I um, became acquainted with Lola Montez, I have to say, is Flashman. So th is there's Lola Montez, and then there's um, those of you who've listened to the episode that we did on statues. Um, oh, yes. May remember, we are on Whitehall, there's a statue of uh, Spencer Cavendish, the Duke of Devonshire. Um, this guy I'd never heard of till Dominic told me who he was. I mean, the most extraordinary lingerie you've ever seen in, on, on this statue. Um, and, um, and Dominic revealed that he, he, was, he was most interesting because he had an affair with this woman, um, Catherine Walters, who was known as Skittles. Um, and Skittles was famous for riding in the, the tightest riding habit that what, any woman, Park? yes, riding yeah, through yeah. Hyde Park and, and St. James's Park in this incredibly tight riding habit. Um, and so she had an affair with, it, with um, the Duke of Devonshire, but also with um, Napoleon III and with the Prince of Wales, Ed, the future Edward VII, who probably comes second to Charles II as a, a royal... Yes. A royal sponsor of mistresses but didn't he sort of uh, wasn't he also quite i mean edward the 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 seventh i mean in terms of l'entente cordiale wasn't it sort of partly he was having you know a few of his flings were quite good for building relationships <laughs> well that's what France. he said you know, i mean I, I mean he was you know <laughs> it was important for him yeah that's I mean, what he, he told doing, mommy he was doing a diplomatic service yeah i mean I, yeah <laughs> uh, you, i'm not sure about that i'm not sure about that for you know, <laughs> cordiale that i 
But, but I, I mean, I think Lily, Lily, Lily Langtree is, is Edward VII's most famous yeah, mistress. Famous, you know, yeah. They had the fling long before um, he, he, he succeeded, to, to Queen, uh, succeeded his mother, Queen Victoria. Um, uh, Lily Langtree, um, she, she came from, um, uh, from Jersey. She was known as the Jersey Lily. Um, her husband, um, who, who gives her the name, I think it's Edward Langtree, um, he turns up in Jersey with a fabulous yacht. And so Lily Langtree, who's the daughter of this clergyman, who's an absolute ladies' man, <laughs> completely notorious, um, kind of falls into his arms with great gratitude, and they sail off to to, to, to London. What her her father is a lady. Is that what you said? Yeah, her father is is this. Yeah, I think she, he's the dean of. And Jersey. he's a great ladies' man. He's a great ladies' man. Oh. Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, and when she's in London, she's incredibly beautiful. She gets taken up by kind of artists. She serves as a model for all kinds of painters. Uh, and that's how she, she um, ends up with, um, the, with the Prince of Wales. And she's with the Prince of Wales for three years, gets presented to Queen Victoria, unbelievably. I mean, it's kind of, you know, she's, she, she's, she's what, very- What did she, she make of it? Well, Lily Langtree's incredibly charming. And all mistresses, to be a mistress, it's not just enough to be yeah, gorgeous. You've got to be charming yeah. and witty and intelligent. Yeah, so, and, and, and so they separate. Basically, you know, Prince of Wales moves on to pastures new, but is always very fond of Lily. Yeah. Uh, but the problem that Lily faces once the Prince of Wales has, has kind of moved on is that all her creditors immediately move in because oh. they've been living beyond their means. And so Lily's stuck for things to do. And so her, her great friend Oscar Wilde says, well, have you thought of going on the stage? So it exactly reverses what happens with, um, with, with Nell Gwynne. Um, and she she's a great success at this. She becomes a you know she's a, a fabulously good, uh, and she goes to America. She's a great smash on the American stage. Um, she she starts to kind of take an interest in in uh, horse racing. Starts to own horses. Um, you know wins. Uh, she she um, uh, she wins Goodwood. Um, she hangs out with with Gladstone. I mean, obviously, he doesn't have an affair with Gladstone. No one would have an affair with Gladstone. <laughs> but they, so, so so she she becomes a kind of, she, she she becomes incredibly famous. Um, and she ends up marrying uh, this guy, and I'm going to have to read this because his name is so posh, Hugo Gerald de Bath. I think, I hope I've pronounced Hugo that. Hugo Gerald de who? Hugo Gerald de Bath. Bath. Oh. And she ends up as Lady de Bath. Uh, and, and in her 70s, she lives in Monte Carlo. Oh. Uh, Gerald is in Venice, and it's all... So when did, when did, she, when did she eventually, when did she die? 1920s sometimes. Oh right. So, okay. so she's a kind of she's she's a bridge between the age of the classic yeah. Victorian courtesan, and of course the famous mistresses of the of the 20th century. So Marilyn, who's an actress, who is you know just as famous as JFK. Yeah. Um, and Camilla, who I think is is actually descended from Lily Langtree. Yes, I think um, she is. Yeah. So, so anyway, so 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 Lily Langtree, I think, is is um, is a deserved. She she deserves to be at number mm. five. Um, she, you know, she makes a tremendous success of it. Um, is it, still kind of, you know, she still has pubs named after her to this day. Oh, and I forgot to say about Nell Gwynne that Nell Gwynne, I think, is the only mistress to have a statue. We would have, we're very interested in statues. There's a statue of Nell Gwynne. She's the only what? royal mistress to have had a statue. There's a, there's a, a block of um, part, block of flats in Chelsea called Nell Gwynne House. And there's a statue of her. There's a statue of her. Yeah. Wow. And I think, you know, we. In our statues episode, we were. Oh yes, I've been past that. We were talking about Melbourne how House. how all the yeah. you know all the statues are kind of basically of generals, of but we could yeah. do with more statues of royal mistresses. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, a statue of Nell Gwynne, statue of Lily Langtree, it'd be it'd be great.
number four. Now we're, this is this is a proper this is a proper mistress. Yeah, we're talking proper. Yeah, this is proper stuff. None of this sort of actresses. Um, so, Madame de Pompadour, who is the mistress to Louis the Fifteenth of France. Now, the interesting thing about Madame de Pompadour is powerful as she becomes, and she actually does break some of the. Uh, uh, break some of the sort of the, the standards that we've been talking about in as much as that in the French system in the French royal system there was a post of chief royal mistress yes and not only does she you know fill this post but it comes with lodgings which Maitresse is rather interesting on yeah so you know this is a formal position for Louis XV and she ends up basically effectively uh, uh, running parts of the state which is you know she, she has quite she a lot of political power basically, yeah, she, she basically both um, she also is there, as we were saying, you know, long after, you know, you said, you know, age is a sort of a, an occupational hazard, but not in her case. I mean, she hangs in there yes. uh, until quite late, you know, and she's, she's, uh, she knows that she gets to a stage where she sort of says, I'm not really interested in all this uh, in intimate stuff anymore, I can't handle it. So I'm going to bring in some other people to, to sort out the king on this basis, as long as they don't yeah. mess around with his um, So it's kind of layers of mistress. Yeah. So she's, a, she's in a different league, actually, I think. But, I, but but kind of creepy and weird she's as well. Sort of like a second wife. But it's 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 interesting because I mean when we go back, if we can go back to number ten, the um, you know what do we you know what's the distinction between a, you know this as a mistress and a second wife? Well, I tell you one distinction. I mean you know she's basically his second wife, right? I but mean, one distinction is is that she is groomed for that position. Groomed. She's groomed, oh, and groomed. and I use the word advisedly. Mm. So she. So before she becomes Madame de Pompadour, she's, she's, her name is Poisson, so she's called Fish. Fish? Yes. It's Jean, as bad as Pat. Jean-Antoinette yeah. Poisson. Yeah. And um, at the age of nine, apparently, she's told by a fortune teller that she's going to win the heart of a king. And so from that point on, she, um, she becomes known to her family as Renette, little, little queen. And basically, her, her parents start grooming her to become the royal mistress, which, I mean, even for the French, <laughs> that's pretty. Yeah, I mean, I must admit that. That's I mean, it's quite odd, isn't that it? That is a bit. Yeah, that's. A, I mean, but <laughs> so, so and so, uh, you know, rather like Emma Hamilton, kind of educates herself to to, to to you know be able to kind of hang out with with rich people. She she is you know she's tr she's kind of educated, given dancing lessons, all that kind of stuff. Um, and, well, I, uh, I mean, you're saying it's sort of quite creepy in some ways. It was probably creepy to us, but probably not to well, 18th I mean, you know, century French society. Well, it, I it, mean, if you, if you think that you know their ideas is that um, this is a formal position. Yes. You know, so you're basically. Uh, yeah, so she's yeah. yeah. She's applying yeah. for a job. And she and she, so she, she um, so so the king is out hunting, and she yeah. goes along to the hunting, and she wears a pink dress and drives a kind of blue chariot, and then she puts on a blue dress and drives a pink chariot while he's hunting. Right. And you'd think, rather than infuriating him, which, frankly, if I was hunting yeah, and this yeah, woman absolutely. turns up kind yeah, of yeah. scaring all the game, I'd be pretty cross. But no, he, he really likes this. And so then they have a masked ball at which he, very peculiarly, goes as a tree. Goes as a tree? He goes as a tree. Wow. And she goes as Diana, the goddess of hunting. So, uh, <laughs> all right. very... Uh, right. And so then they, 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 they take off their masks. But you're beautiful. And um, and there it is. They she she's kind of but 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 she as you say is absolutely qualified to you know I mean she she's an incredibly impressive woman very very competent and basically the king can't func function without well, her. And, and when I say function I mean, I mean politically. And and then here's the interesting thing I suppose in terms of 
you know, where we're heading is that she has a very, very emphatic uh, and decisive political role to play because she's the one who basically in the Seven Years' War manages the switch in alliance between you know, and makes yeah. know, Austria and France basically allied after years and years of, of animosity. But the Seven Years' War, um, as those of you who, who, who've listened uh, to the episode to, we did yeah, yeah, with, with Dan with Snow, um, I mean, it actually didn't go very well. No, not for the French. So the famous phrase, après moi, le, le déluge. Yeah, that's her, um, yes. That's a, yeah, well, that's her famous yeah, phrase. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, but she, 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 you know, she was obviously awesomely competent, efficient, um, also great patron of, of the, the Enlightenment philosophe, great, great enthusiast for but Diderot. But she sort of set up this, this house for his sort of sub-mistresses. Yes. And called it the, the stag house. Yeah, it's, quite quite extraordinary it's all very French. It's yes, all very it French, and I, I, extremely powerful though. I think. Yes, so so um, so I think she's in it for. But we now we've now come to the top three. Okay, here's the top, it's getting important now. The top three. Um, in at number three, um, we have a Greek, uh, Aspasia. I'll have to leave this one to you, Tom. And uh, well, no, Ali, because well, there is going to be know. a Persian uh, dimension there will to be, this. Yes, but I, yeah. I, I, I there's a case, I think, for having Aspasia in at number one. Um, so she, she is uh, from Miletus, which mm. is a famous trading city uh, on the, um, uh, the Aegean coast um, of, of what is now Turkey, had been destroyed by the Persians, boo hiss. Uh, but by, by the mid fifth century, when Aspasia is born, sure is starting it. to recover. Mm. Um, it's likely that she is, um, uh, descended from a very aristocratic Athenian family to which the great Athenian statesman Pericles, who commissions the Parthenon and rebuilds Athens um, it, in its golden age. Um, and so she goes with, with, with her sister to Athens and um, settles there. Now, Athens is a kind of very chauvinist place, so she's seen as a foreigner. And Athens is also an unbelievably kind of Taliban-esque place in its attitudes to towards Athens. women, oh. yes. So, so it's it's women are are very very subordinate in in Athenian life. They they do not have a public role to play at all. Um, the pub the, the the women who do kind of you know um, meet men and kind of hang out with them are are, are called hetaira. They're kind of very uh, rather courtesans, kind of yeah, very posh, educated yeah, pros yeah. prostitutes. And so there is this. Aspasia, as this very high-profile foreign woman, is an obvious butt for the mockery of Pericles' enemies and for um, uh, comic dramatists like Aristophanes. And so there is this kind of seam of abuse uh, of Aspasia that she's either um, a, a high-class courtesan or a low-class courtesan, a low-class courtesan. And there are stories that she actually runs a brothel. Um, and Aristophanes accuses Aspasia of starting the Peloponnesian War, the war between Athens and Sparta, which ends up ruining Athens because um, she, ends, she, she, she becomes um, Pericles' mistress. Um, and the story goes that um, uh, people from a, a city called Megara have stolen three prostitutes from Aspasia's brothel. And it's in ve vengeance for that that Pericles introduces a trade embargo against Megara, which in turn sets up a kind of domino effect, which culminates in the in the Peloponnesian War. Now, 
Is this true? That there is a very different way to look at Aspasia, and that is to say that she is a person who has an absolutely seismic influence on the two aspects of Athens that for which you know it's best known in its golden age. The first is uh, politically, and the second is in the dimension of philosophy. Yeah. So Aspasia becomes the mistress of Pericles, the most powerful man in, in Athens. Pericles is, is obsessed by her. Um, he can't marry her because of a rule that he, a law that he himself has introduced, which says that, um, that, that, that uh, Athenian men can't marry foreign women. But he, basically they, they kind of live as, as effectively as man and wife. He is notorious for kissing her in public um, he's notorious for kissing her every day. This is noted by Plutarch centuries later as a kind of weird aberration, you know, <laughs> kissing the same woman endlessly. It wouldn't have happened uh, in yes. Persia, I can no. tell you. If he'd <laughs> no. only, only moved across the Aegean, eh? Um, and, um, but it's an interesting point about how badly women are treated in Athens, actually, because, I mean, of course, you know... Uh, yeah, it's much more liberated in Persia. I think, it genuinely, I think it genuinely, I mean, it's really tough. But, but, but according to Plato, yeah. um, it's Aspasia who actually writes the famous funeral oration that Pericles gives, which is recorded in, in, in Thucydides' history, oh, yeah. over the war dead in the first years of the Peloponnesian War. So there's this kind of, and even, so even the kind of Aristophanes joke about um, uh, Aspasia starting the Peloponnesian War, it's casting her as a political player. And the idea of a woman as a serious contributor towards Athenian political life, I mean, is, is staggering, absolutely staggering. But on top of that, there's the possibility that she stands as the fountainhead of the entire Western philosophical tradition. Um, and this is the thesis of a wonderful mm. book by yeah. the um, Oxford classicist um, Armand Dangor, who wrote a book, Socrates in Love. And he argues that, um, well, basically, before Pericles, Aspasia had a relationship with Socrates. Um, and again, from, from Plutarch, we're told that Socrates used to visit her all the time with his disciples, that she instructed um, Athenians in rhetoric. And Armand has argued that the symposium, um, Pericles' great kind of uh, um, dialogue, um, in which Socrates just gives his great theory of love. And Socrates says that his philosophy of love derives from um, uh, a woman called Diotima. Uh, he says, that everything that I have learned, I learned long ago, um, you know, when I was a young man, from this very, very clever, brilliant woman. Um, who is Diotima? Um, Armand's argument is that Diotima, it, it means um, uh, honoured by Zeus. Pericles' nickname was Zeus. Oh. You know, a bit like Macron calls himself Jupiter. Pericles was known <laughs> as, 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 um, as, as Zeus. And, and that Diotima is Aspasia. And that therefore uh, you can make the case that, um, so you know, that, that you know, you've got Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Aspasia. That Aspasia stands at the head of this entire tradition, you know, which is an absolutely brilliant thesis, absolutely stunning. The reason that I haven't put Aspasia in at number one is because I, I think it's, it's unproven. <laughs> and the counter view is that basically we know nothing about Aspasia at all. So a because, good, a because good, a, good, a good Greek myth. Yeah, well, this is a problem. A if, if Dominic were here, he'd, yeah. he'd just be kind of going, yeah, well, you know, well it's a problem of ancient yeah. history. I'm going to channel so, my inner Dominic so, any moment now. But 
I, well, I'm slightly puzzled. I mean, I, you know, I must. Well, because all, I'm because all this, this stuff. All with Socrates, though. I mean, Socrates was not renowned for being a great sort of, uh, how should we say, seducer of. You know, yeah, but as a young man, as a young man, mm. and he, and, you know, he talks about this woman that he, Wasn't you know. He, so, so, so I think she I must think have been it's in love with his intellect. I presume. Well, as a young man, I'm sure yeah. you know he's a, he's a. Yeah. yeah, no, you know, I mean, okay. we know he, he's, he fights in... Certainly you know, in the Muslim in, tradition, Socrates so, is not considered to be particularly... And is there a Persian dimension to Aspasia? Well, there is, there is, now that you mention it. Uh, and that, and they, which, might, which might actually go to the, the argument that uh, she may well have um, certainly existed, I don't know about the influence that you claim she held. But Cyrus the Younger, who was the satrap, the governor of... Um, uh, uh, which, 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 uh, of, of, of Western Anatolia... Uh, he apparently named his mistress after her uh, as a sort yeah. of a emulation, so to speak, which is quite interesting, actually, in so that sense. That so he obviously thought that she was some, someone of significance. So a pers the Persian seal of approval as well. Lydia. So I think, I think she, she, she deserves she to be at number three. Uh, had, had, you know, were the evidence a little bit firmer, she, she'd be in at number one. the Peloponnesian War, remind me, who benefited from the Peloponnesian War? The Spartans. And who were the supporters of the Spartans? Uh, the Persians. Thank you. <laughs> yes, anyway, let's so move on. So I mean, she must have been important. She must have been important because she, <laughs> she, basically, she basically facilitated the destruction of Athens, which is... Uh, OK, so that's why she's at three and not exactly, at one. Exactly, there you are. OK, okay. so number two. In at ah, number, right, number two, is, yeah. just bubbling under, we have... Marie Valeska. Now... Uh, and this is your choice, Ali. This is my choice, yeah. Because I think she plays a very, very important role, actually, in the history of Europe and certainly in the history of Napoleonic Europe. So tell she her who is she is. The, who, Marie Valeska was the um, uh, wife of a, a Polish nobleman. A very um, old one. A very it? old Polish nobleman, it has to be said, who, um, when Napoleon goes careering across Europe and uh, defeats the Prussians and then the Russians and he's heading into um, uh, what is, is now Poland, uh, the Polish noblemen gather round and encourage Marie Valeska. They sort of say, if you want to do your duty for your country, to your country, we would encourage you uh, to engage in, uh, basically, to become Napoleon's mistress. And if you become Napoleon's mistress, it will further the cause of Polish independence, because then he will have a very personal interest in all this. Now, I don't know how much of that is, you know, uh, is realistic, but certainly he, he became uh, infatuated with her. Uh, he was certainly very taken by her, and uh, she did indeed become his mistress. And then, of course, uh, Napoleon did then set up from the conquest the Grand Duchy of Warsaw, yeah. which was going to be then the sort of fledgling. I mean, the anticipation was was that he would re recreate the Kingdom of Poland, which had been which had been divided um, amongst the empires of Russia, Prussia, and Austria. So she plays quite an important role in that. I think a very strong political role. She became, despite her reluctance to begin with, I think very fond of Napoleon, and um, actually was the one person to visit him on Elba when he was in exile in 1814, although he wasn't terribly, I don't think he was terribly responsive, I have to say. Uh, but uh, he has uh, the interest, the other interesting thing, I suppose, is that she, he does have a son by her, which convinces him then that, of course, uh, the problem is not with him, but with Josephine, and therefore the divorce with Josephine goes ahead and he then marries uh, into the Austrian, the Habsburg royal family. But I think she's, she's significant, really, for, I suppose, this, this important role she plays in, in European history uh, and, 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 and the influence she obviously has on Napoleon. The, the, the son, uh, Alexander, um, I mean, you know, she's then looked after, after, you know, after you know, Napoleon goes into exile finally in St Helena and she's... she's uh, you know, the, the descendants are, are, are still with us. So, I mean, it's not, uh, it's not as if she was 
she was uh, thrown aside. I mean, uh, when Napoleon III comes back in, and the, uh, you know, she's she's the, the the descendants of Alexander and others are well catered for. So I mean, it's uh, it's quite an influential, I think, an, an influential relationship in that sense. There's um, there's a brilliant thing I just read just before coming yeah. out that um, when uh, that, that Napoleon was in Warsaw when he met her. Yeah. And he had invited Josephine to come to Warsaw. But they, no, but yeah, but then he and, said no. Well, it, he said, I'm busy now. No, he didn't. <laughs> oh, right. No, he didn't. He, he, what he said to Josephine was, I love you with all my heart, but the winter is terrible. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And he was. It'd be far too cold for you to Yeah, 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 yeah. So disgraceful behavior from Napoleon. Well, and do you know what the, the Countess, Countess Potocki said about um, Marie? No. Gorgeous but thick. Oh, really? So that's, that's the counter oh, view, is that perhaps she just got, she just got lucky. She just got, well, I, yeah. I mean, I, th I agree. I think that, that, that she, she clearly, Presumably you know, she, didn't get involved she did her duty. Because she, she was very duty. pious. She was she a very, was very pious, pious Catholic. She was Catholic. And, um, so she was obviously reluctant. I mean, in fairness, her husband was, was, I think, twice or almost three times her age. I don't think he was over... He was 52 the, years older than her, apparently. Yeah, 52 years older. And, uh, but the idea that a delegation of Polish noblemen would come up to you and sort of say, look, you know, I think, really think Do you need duty. to take one for the team. Yeah. yeah <laughs> off, 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 off you go. Yeah. And, um, you know, she's obviously, you know, not, uh, yeah. not entirely. I mean, I think partly she's slightly in awe of this, of this individual. But, um, but it, I agree. it does turn I out agree. to be one of the great love affairs. I, I, I mean, agree. in fairness, so, it does yeah. turn out so, to be so, so I think um, she's in it too because, you know, compared to Napoleon, she's obviously a very obscure person. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And she achieves great things for her country. It's a kind of heroic thing to have done. I mean, the only um, thing I would, the only, the only, you know, the caveat I'd have, I suppose, with them, why she's probably not number one, is that, you know, would Napoleon have, have recreated the Grand Duchy of Warsaw or helped without yeah. her? Probably yes. I mean, I think that would. I mean, this probably just edged things along. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So number one is someone who indisputably yeah, now this does is, have this an impact. Qualitatively, indisputably yeah, has a, a seismic we agree on this. impact on the course of history, mm. and who perhaps more than anyone else in the list comes from nowhere. So comes she? She comes from nowhere to shape the destiny not just of nations but of continents. And our number one, our number one is ah. La Malinche. And La Malinche, <laughs> for those who don't know, she, um, she, she's born on the edge of the Aztec Empire, yeah. just before the Spanish arrive. Um, she is, we don't, so, so the measure of, of the obscurity from which she comes is we don't know her original name. We know that she was the daughter of, of a nobleman, um, probably of a, her mother was a slave. Um, this is a community that is kind of constantly overshadowed by the expansionism of, of the Aztecs. Um, and when she's still quite a young girl, so maybe seven or eight, um, she gets sold into slavery. Uh, perhaps her parents are forced to do it. Perhaps she gets kind of, you know, um, off, given as a way of trying to buy off Aztec uh, aggression. So she gets taken to a great kind of slave mart. She gets bought by uh, the mayor, a, a people of the mayor, um, uh, the uh, um, uh, Tabasco, uh, the River Tabasco, right. uh, as in the uh, Mexican 
Well, she actually Aztec herself. Is no, she's, she's not. And that's, no, she's not. No, so she's subjugated by yes. The so she's she's kind of on the uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and this is really important to what yeah. then happens. Um, so she gets brought up as a slave there. Again, we don't know what name she has as a slave, um, but she 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 speaks Nahuatl, the the language of the Aztecs and of of that kind of band. She goes. She she learns Maya, and then the Spanish arrive, and. Um, they basically the, the 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 people who own her are, are so intimidated that they make an offering of twenty slaves to the Spanish, and uh, this girl is one of them, and this is the making of her, because present in the Spanish ranks is um, uh, a Spaniard called um, Jeronimo de Aguilar, who had been a slave himself he'd been captured by the mayor so he speaks uh, one of the mayor languages and so this means that um the spanish can start to communicate because um uh, this girl speaks uh mayor um the spaniard speaks mayor and so the spaniards can start to communicate so does she learn spanish of him well hold, we'll come to that uh, so she gets given the name, she, she gets converted, you know, baptized, gets given yeah. the name Marina. Um, the, um, the, uh, the people of Central America, they, they transliterate this as Melina. Um, they, they start to call her Melin Sin, which is a kind of a, 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 digni a way of dignifying her name. Um, and due course, the Spanish again kind of hispanicizes and call her La Melincha. Um, and the key turning moment in her life is when the Spaniards with Hern Cortez, the leader, go back up towards where they're going to launch the expedition against um, the Aztecs, go to Tenochtitlan, the, the great capital, attack Moctezuma. I'm, and impre I'm impressed you said that. Thank you. <laughs> well, we did, a, we, did, we did a wonderful episode um, with Camilla Townsend on, 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 um, yeah. on this, so I had to practice wow. for that. Yeah. Um, and there it turns out that um, Aguilar does not speak Nahuatl. Right. And Cortez is furious about this because they can't communicate. And then La Malinche steps forward and says, I can, I can speak Nahuatl. So you have this kind of chain that as the, as the Spaniards march towards Tenochtitlan, La Malinche will translate from Nahuatl, will translate it into Maya, Aguilar will then translate it into Spanish. Spanish. But as they go, La Malinche is very, very smart. Mm -hmm. She starts to learn Spanish. So uh -huh. Aguilar gets cut out. Oh and Malinche essentially becomes the interface for Cortes and um, everybody in the Aztec Empire. Now, some of these, of course, are the enemies, the Aztecs themselves. But for Malinche, this is a chance to get back at, at, at the Aztecs. And so it's, it's La Malinche who basically constructs the um, alliance that enables the Spanish to defeat the, um, the Aztec Empire because there are all kinds of uh, subject peoples who are desperate to revolt. And it's La Malinche who is not only a brilliant linguist, but a brilliant diplomat, who essentially stitches this, um, stitches this, uh, uh, this, this alliance together. Because, I mean, the number of Spaniards, we're talking about, what, 500? Yeah, they're very, 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 all, very, very few. So La Malinche is recognized by the Spaniards themselves as having mm. played an absolutely key role. Mm. So she has, a, she has this relationship with, with Cortez, she has, has a, a son by him, uh, Martin Cortez, who, for Mexicans to this day, serves as the kind of fountainhead of the, the, um, the, the, the 
the mixing of, of the European and the Central American. So it's, he, he's kind of seen as the first Mexican, if you like, in that kind of, you know, the, the first embodiment of, of modern Mexico. Um, and she is seen by Mexicans today in a very ambivalent light. So is she a traitor? But this is so, 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 for, so, so for lots of Mexicans, she's seen as, as the embodiment of a traitor. Um, but for lots of Mexicans, she's seen as someone who basically creates Mexico. And she, she, she has this huge, huge influence on, um, on Cortes, on the Spanish, and on, on the Aztecs, and on all the other various Nahuatl-speaking I mean, you can peoples. Only, you can only really, I mean, this is interesting me, I mean, you can only really see her as a traitor if you look, look Look at her through the prism of modern nationalism. Surely, I mean, absolutely, that's the thing. I yes, mean, and, and you can see it, but from the perspective of 16th century, you know, Mexico and whatever, she she was probably um, you know taking revenge for the way her people had been treated yes. for many many years. And it's really striking that she, for instance, she never adopts European dress. That's interesting. Um, she 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 always wears. Um, she's a, she's a, she's recounted in uh, Diaz's conquest of New Spain. Is that that's absolutely right? who? And, and he the, says that. Um, you know that she's a hugely admirable figure. Cortez himself says that um, you know he uh, he owes obviously for, yeah, for the conquest enormous. of Mexico he owes most to God, but then he owes most to to La Malinche. I mean, I mean, it's um, seismic when you think about it. I mean, the the, tra the the role she plays and the conquest of New Spain and basically the establishment of the Spanish Empire in, yeah. in America is, is well. Yeah, I don't think I don't think you can beat that really. No, and and, and, and so and and she establishes a school of of translators. Wow. So she's the person basically who 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 enables you know the the two sides to communicate. She is um, she's kind of cheerful. She's she's charming. Every basically everybody loves her. I mean everybody so he meets her loves Cortez, her. Cortez had a wife in Spain. Didn't yes, he? and so he can't well, he can't he, no he's not going to marry her, but he does marry her to a to a kind of very well bred. Conquistador, which oh, right. then means that that she is recognised as a, a you know a donna, a, a lady by the Spaniards. So Cortes kind of does right by her, um, and she dies very young. But oh. you know, having achieved incredible, incredible things, and I think that she's number one. I mean, you know, we all agreed that she should be number one because, you know, as you say, we, she comes from nowhere. She's a slave. She's a nameless slave. We don't know what her name was as a slave or before she became enslaved. And she she rises to have this outsized impact on the history of Mexico, on the history of Spain, on the history of the world. So um, I think that Lemelinche shows just how I far well, I mean, a we mistress with can a, go. We started with a slave who did basically nothing. Yes. And we've ended with a slave who enabled the conquest of the uh, of, of the Aztec Empire, which is uh, yeah. I said. I mean, as I said, I, I agree. I mean, I think her her, her inference is outsized. Really. I mean, it's it's enormous. Yes. Uh, it's wonderful um, that you've. You've all slept out here on a, on a Friday night to hear us. Um, uh, so thanks ever so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com That's restishistorypod.com Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? 
I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean and I'm thrilled to say that this week Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.